the chapters we have for our study today were so appropriate as we enter into the season of Lent as a church family. And Lent is the time in the church year where we focus particularly on Jesus' journey to the cross. We remember his suffering for our redemption as we lead up to the Easter celebration. And we call to mind those passages in the Gospels where Jesus has set his focus on getting to Jerusalem and what must occur there. Jesus was deeply aware of the trajectory of his ministry, even when his disciples were totally clueless and didn't understand. Uh, Luke 9.51 says, As the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he set resolutely out for Jerusalem. And then in Luke 18, verses 31 through 34, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day he will rise again. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. Remarkably, this focus on redeeming God's people through the Messiah's ministry in Jerusalem is not something that originates in God's heart only during the years of Christ's life here on earth. Our Lord and his generosity revealed this plan of salvation through one who would suffer on our behalf many years in advance, and through the book of Isaiah, even almost 700 years before Jesus was born. And so today we have this very special section of the book of Isaiah to consider as three of the four servant songs are found in our four chapters that we have assigned this morning. And these servant songs are reflections from the pre-incarnate Christ about the scope of his ministry. As we think about Jesus' eternal existence, that he existed as part of the triune God even before his incarnation, um, and we think about that, these passages give us a glimpse into his heart and his mind as the one who came to suffer and die for us, that we would find true freedom. And so this section of Isaiah abounds with descriptions about the nature of Jesus' first coming. And his presence is also given as the answer to the perpetual problem of Israel's waywardness. They've been addressing in chapters 41 through 48 the immediate problem of God's people are in exile and away from the land of promise. And that was a problem that needed to be solved. But still, the larger question remains. How will God fix the problem of sin that brought Israel into exile in the first place. Israel has failed to be the light to the nations that God desired. But the Lord promises to raise up one from in their midst who will be all that they have failed to be. And what's more, his suffering will bring deliverance from captivity, not only in exile, but captivity to sin once and for all. Another shift has taken place in our Isaiah text. In chapters 41 through 48, with just one exception, the focus has been on the servanthood of Israel. 
Israel's deliverance from captivity would be a witness to the nations about their lame idols who can't do anything and the difference of the one true God of Israel. But in the midst of those chapters, 41 through 48, in chapter 42, there's the first servant song that revealed that a servant would come and with the spirit of God resting on him, he would be God's agent for change. The servant would be the one to bring justice to the nations, that justice that they have longed for, light for those living in darkness, and hope to the distant lands. So now in chapters 49 through 53, more of the servant's identity and mission is revealed. The servant himself, as we open chapter 49, calls the nations to hear the plan that is being uncovered. The servant will display the splendor of the Lord and gather Israel back to the Lord. Even from before his conception, the servant is one who is set apart to do this special work. At times, the servant's work may appear to be futile, but he puts the fruit of his labors into the Lord's hands. So let's take a deeper look at these servant songs and the themes of Jesus' life that they present. One of the the major themes that um, we see first is about captivity and freedom. Starting in Isaiah 49, we no longer see these references to Cyrus and about the idols. Those have disappeared. But instead, there's a different kind of captivity, uh, other than the one in Babylon that is being addressed. In chapter 49, verse 9, the captives are called out of, and those in darkness are set free. And instead of desolation, the Lord will lead his people into a place of abundance. So it's not just the Babylonian captivity, but a bigger captivity that the Lord's addressing here. Another substantial theme that we see is the Lord's everlasting covenant with his people. It's a covenant that cannot be broken. The people in Zion, while they're in captivity, they they feel forgotten. But the Lord declares he can never forget his covenant people. And so whenever I get to this passage in Isaiah about not being able to forget God's people, I'm reminded of a scene from the movie Toy Story. And I'm not sure if you've all seen it, but way back to the first Toy Story, toys Woody and Buzz have been taken captive by the evil neighbor Sid. This is a kid who does all sorts of destructive and super mean things to his toys. He burns them with... uh, magnifying glasses to get them to talk and takes off their limbs and creates new things. And so Woody and Buzz are in the midst of all this destruction and they feel utterly forsaken and without any hope of returning to their rightful home. There's a mean dog that guards the the home and they're just not going to get out. And then there's the scene of the dismal rain that reflects their utter despair. But finally, as they've resigned to their demise, they view the writing on their feet. They see the the word Andy inscribed there. Their true owner, Andy, has written his name on them. They belong to Andy, and so they have importance and value that this destructive Sid can't take away. And so once they acknowledge their true identity, they muster up the courage to escape. So God's people, they find themselves in similar circumstances in captivity. They are without hope and resigned to darkness. 
But these passages in Isaiah help them to, re- to remember. If they can recall their identity, everything changes. They are the ones who are engraved on the palm of God's hands and on whom the Lord has declared he will never forgive them. With this identity, they can have courage and have faith. They matter. They belong. They are not forgotten. Captivity is not forever. But unlike Woody and Buzz, they can't just muster the strength to save themselves. Instead, they must trust the one who will come for them. The Lord has declared that his love for his covenant people is even more fierce and more protective than a mother has for her nursing child. Even if she was to forget the infant at her breast, the Lord can never forget his people. And so this brings us to a topic that's a struggle for God's people in all times and in every generation, and that's waiting for God's promises to unfold, especially when it seems like it's a long time. There were very few who had been born when Israel was, went into captivity in exile that were still alive when this captivity came to an end. And this promise took 70 years to come to fulfillment, just as the prophet Jeremiah had said. And then we have these rich passages about the servant who was coming to save. But that was almost 700 years then before the Messiah would come on the scene in flesh. And then since the Messiah's first coming, we've been waiting some 2,000 years for his glorious return. But we do not give up hope. Because the Lord promises that our waiting will not be in vain. I could have also picked for our focus verse this morning part of Isaiah 49:23, And I think this is a phenomenal verse as well. It says, Then you, know that I am, then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. Wow. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed. I need that because it's easy to get disappointed. But to remember that our ultimate hope is in the Lord. And so this is a, a verse to plant deep in our hearts when the waiting has seemed to go on way too long. Those who were able to guard their hope amidst the people of Israel are those who truly believe God's love for them. So if we're going to hang on to hope, we need to remember God's precious love. The external circumstances um, of their challenging lives cause them to wonder, does God really love us? Does he really have affection towards us? But these passages in Isaiah spell it out clear. The Lord's love for his people is intense. The Lord's love for his people is engraved in his nail-pierced hands. And if our hope begins to flicker, then the oil we need to keep our lamps burning is that of God's love, to remember how much he loves us. Because his love overcomes all obstacles. His arm is not too short to ransom, nor does he lack the strength to rescue us. Then as we get to Isaiah 50, the sin of Israel is contrasted with the obedience of the servant. 
We, we heard in other passages that Israel's ears were closed to the messages of God. But the servant's ears are always ready to hear the words of the Lord. The servant has not rebelled, nor has he drawn back in difficult circumstances. Even unto suffering, the servant stays obedient to his mission. The servant never lost hope in the Lord's purposes, even when he is treated unfairly and unjustly punished. The servant is confident in the Lord's presence and his capacity to help. And no matter what the servant's persecutors say, he remains steadfast amidst his opposition. And so as we hear this passage, we're called to listen to the servant and to trust his words. If we ignore the servant's words, we are ignoring God. And so the first portion of Isaiah 51 summons the hearer or the reader, whichever those may be, to listen, to look, and to awake. Listen and walk in the righteous ways of the servant. Look and see that while everything else perishes, nothing will endure without the help of the Lord. And awake in the strength of the Lord. In 51 verse 3, a garden is pictured there, a beautiful lush garden. And this recalls God's original purpose for creation, a purpose of beauty, harmony, and blessing. And this is still the Lord's purpose, and the servant will be the one to restore this vision for God's people. God is able and willing to turn their wastelands and ruins into places of singing and gladness. They have been longing for God to awake to their situation. And the Lord in these passages has fully proven that he has not been sleeping on the job. The tables have turned and the people of Israel are called to awake and take by faith what has been offered to them. So then as we get to Isaiah 52 verses 1 through 12, this tone of anticipation um, intensifies as God calls Israel to do the very opposite of what Babylon was commanded to do in chapter 47. The Lord told Babylon to go down from the throne and to sit in the dust in rags. But here, Jerusalem is to put on garments of splendor, shake off your dust, and sit enthroned. God has a plan, and it's in breaking. Jerusalem will be transformed from a slave into a queen. Then as we get to verse 7 through 12 in Isaiah 52, it comes to a conclusion about all that has been said about redemption, even since Isaiah 40. Their victory in the Lord will be so profound that the whole world will behold what has happened. They don't just need to kind of sneak out the back door or rush out in a hurry thinking that their pursuers are going to follow them. No, the victory is complete and total. God himself is their rear and front guard, and the Lord leads the victory procession. However, this ultimate victory comes at a great cost. As chapter 52 ends, we find that the exalted servant is also the one who suffers greatly for his people. No one could fathom that this is the turn that God's plan would take. 
We have heard repeated throughout the chapters about the arm of the Lord. And so this arm of the Lord is a metaphor that describes God's ability to restore his people to himself, his covenant nation, and even all creation. God brings them back to himself. And we have seen hints about his saving arm in each of our preceding chapters. And in each case, God promises to deliver his people and the entire world through his obedient servant. Yet the way to victory is startling. It's not through a dashing conquest of military might. Instead, the victory comes through the rejection and the abuse as the servant obediently reveals the kingdom of God. The redemptive suffering of the Lord is introduced as one who acts wisely. That's 52 verse 13. This wisdom stands in stark contrast to the ways of the world. Instead of an attractive figure that captures attention, the servant is one who has been disfigured and is no longer recognizable. And instead of the welcome due a victor, the response to the servant is rejection. The servant takes upon himself our suffering, our infirmities, our transgressions, and everything that has kept us from God and that has led us into captivity is heaped upon his shoulders. He is wounded that his people would be made well. And it's through his obedience and sacrifice that he is made an offering, the Lamb of Atonement for the people. He is deprived of earthly justice and earthly descendants. And as a final insult, he's buried with the rich. It was not uncommon in those days, and probably not our day either, for the wealthy to have gained their fortune through unjust means. And so the servant is further slandered as he is given a grave among the wicked. Yet this lot of the servant is not accidental. It was God's intention. The servant didn't just come to tell us about God and what he wants. Rather, the servant came to be what God wants for all of us. And this submission unto death is not futile. Rather, the results are cosmic. Intercession is made for the transgressors and those who are defiled by iniquity are made righteous. The servant himself will even be vindicated after his death. And ultimately, the servant will see the light of life and will be satisfied. Isaiah 53 gives us such a clear picture of what Jesus came to do for us. God fulfilled his promise to make atonement for our sin and to restore us back to him. He did what we could not do in our own strength. And at least as early as Philip's encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch in the book of Acts, Christians have understood that Jesus of Nazareth is the servant whom Isaiah 53 foretells. And so if you replace all of the servant pronouns with the name of Jesus, the description fits his ministry like a glove. And so I'd like us to look at Isaiah 53 in that light. I'll read it together for us. All right, Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Jesus grew up before him like a tender shoot, 
and like a root out of dry ground. Jesus had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Jesus was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one whom men hide their faces, Jesus was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely Jesus took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. But Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by Jesus' wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Jesus was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so Jesus did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away, and who can speak of his descendants? For Jesus was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, Jesus was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked, And with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush Jesus and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. And after the suffering of Jesus' soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and Jesus will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give Jesus a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because Jesus poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For Jesus bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Thanks be to God. Gaining victory through sacrifice has been the way of God's people ever since Jesus' example on the cross. Our servant Jesus shows us how to completely entrust our lives to God. He demonstrates that abundant life does not consist in an abundance of possessions, but rather in obedient service to the Lord. Our servant Jesus leads us on the path where we may be rejected by men, but where we will be vindicated by God. Following the will of God may not lead to the applause of our peers, but it is what will bear fruit that will truly endure. And this humble submission that rests secure in the perfect love of God is what is truly beautiful in the Lord's eyes. And so, Lord, we ask in humility that these glorious truths would be reflected in our lives as well. Amen. Thank you.